Thank you for tuning in to Stories from the Market, a program of people sharing the threads that bind us together in the tapestry of life. Stories from the Market is a broadcast companion to the monthly storytelling concert series put on by storyteller Jeanette Waddell and the Milledgeville Allied Arts. Sharing stories about the family, friends, colleagues, and one-time strangers we've met along life's journey is one way to make the soul's flame grow brighter for ourselves and the communities we're building around us. In these next editions of Stories from the Market, we're celebrating the heroes we love. Tonight, we'll hear Floyd and Melissa Anderson talk about carrying on the pattern of the master craftsman, Joe Dennis. And we'll also hear Veronica Womack talk about the beautiful complexity of life in America's Black Belt. So we'll start off this edition of Stories from the Market now with Floyd and Melissa Anderson sharing memories of Joe Dennis. Well, thank you. I've got notes to keep me from rambling. We want to get out of here today. <laughs> but I do want to tell you about Joe Dennis. Joe Dennis lived out on Pettigrew Road. And he was a sharecropper. Joe was a son of a former slave. And his father had two boys, Joe and his brother, learned to make baskets from their dad. Both of them, they would do sharecropping. When the crops were laid by, they would load up the wagon with all their groceries and tools and cross the river. And they'd stay over there for several days making baskets. And when they got through, they'd load them all up and came back across the river going home and they had these big cotton baskets, and they asked a dollar for them, but they would take 50 cents. But uh, Joe got married in his later part of his life. He was 70 years old when he got married. He took care of his mother until she died. Then a lady came by looking for a hog. And this was Maybell. Maybell was a domestic that worked in Norcross, and she was here in Milledgeville looking to buy a hog. And someone told her that Joe Dennis had a hog that would sell. So she went out to Pettigrew Road and met Joe. And they discussed it. Do you have a hog for sale? Yes, I do. Well, they settled what they were going to do about it. So then she says, are you married, Joe? And Joe said, no, I'm not. And she says, well, do you want to get married? <laughs> and Joe said, he just shuffling around, and finally he says, well, I guess that'd be all right. <laughs> well, Maybell as I said, worked as a domestic in Norcross, Georgia. And she had made arrangements for Joe to come up there and be a yard man and a handyman while she was doing her work. After the first day, Joe said, Maybell, and he called her Dime, 
and I'll tell you why later. But he said, I'm going back to Baldwin County. You can stay here or you can come back, but I'm going back to Baldwin County tomorrow. They both came back. I said he called her dime. Oftentimes he would ask her to do something and he'd wait and she was a little bit slow responding and he'd say, $10 waiting on a dime and she'd come running. I met Joe in the first Brown's Crossing Craftsman's Fair. He and Maybell were there selling his baskets and making his baskets. And I went there on that Saturday and was fascinated by watching him make a basket, taking a tree and breaking it down and making a, a beautiful basket. And not only beautiful, but a very useful type of basket. And I stayed there that Saturday, came back on Sunday to watch some more. And I asked him if he would teach me and I found out where he lived. Well, the following week, I went out and found out where Pettigrew Road was and where Joe Dennis lived. And I went down and talked to him. And he agreed to take me on as an apprentice. Well, that was, I found out what apprentice is. We went to the woods. I carried the tools. I cut the tree. <laughs> I hauled the tree. We got back to the house, I split the tree. Then I was allowed to do that. As long as I can remember, I was the apprentice and I had to do all that. When he thought I was ready for the next step, he'd let me go there. I could not only cut the tree, but I could swing the axe and everything else. Joe couldn't read or write, but he was probably one of the smartest men that I ever knew. He had seen so much and had done so much. One day we were working on a basket and we were in front of some other people and I can't remember where it was, but he said to this one onlooker, he says, see that man there? And he pointed to me and he said, he is the best I ever learned. And I looked at Joe sort of funny, but I wasn't gonna say anything until when we were both alone. And I said, Joe, and me being a school teacher, I just didn't think that was right using that, he learned me. I said, Joe, you didn't learn me, you taught me. And he looked at me and didn't say anything else, but after a while, he said, I learned you. And I said, would you explain that? He said, you can do it. Well, I got home that night and I took Webster down and looked up in the dictionary. To learn is to acquire. To teach is to expose. Well, I use that as a means of evaluation in all my classes that I taught at Georgia College. 
And I'll admit that every day uh, I probably did both <laughs> because that's the way they were. Joe had a lot of sayings and he had a great many of them. I'll share just a few with you. Too much or too little is bad for man, dog, and Bermuda grass. <laughs> I have just enough. No botch work. You don't want anything coming back on you. Don't take any money up front. Do the work and then get paid. We spent most of the time with Joe and Maybell out there in Pettigrew Road, back in the pecan orchard, making baskets. In the mid-1970s, Joe had a stroke. I took him to the hospital, and they tended him and took care of him, but then he wanted to go home. And he raised all kinds of yelling and screaming. He wanted out of there. And I went, and the first one I met was Dr. Body. And I said, can Joe go home? He says, for heaven's sakes, get him out of here. <laughs> Joe said, if I could find my horse, I'd be out of here. His horse was his cane. And so I took him home. He said he'd never do another basket. But the physical therapist had given him a ball and told him to squeeze it because he was afflicted on that left side. And he'd squeeze and he'd squeeze. After a week, I had to buy him another ball. He didn't squeeze it all. But. Joe uh, was so, I don't know how to explain to him really how everything was. Following that fall, Maybell had a stroke. She did recover, but they no longer could farm. Meanwhile, Joe sometime had bought some land up the road, and then he had put a house on it. And people would come by, and they knew Joe was working, and he would sell his baskets, and they'd want to borrow money. Well, he'd put them to work on the house, and they would work and do this. And eventually, the house got done, and Joe and Maybell moved into it. No water, no electricity or anything, but we got it in there. And uh, Joe and I went to the bank and to borrow some money. We we're going to put a well in and a bathroom in running water. And can you imagine a bank lending a 90-plus-year-old man some money? <laughs> well, they did. They told him that in three years he had to have it paid off. He paid it off in one year. In early 1980, I had Joe come out. I was working out across the river at Lake Laurel. I had craft classes. And I had Joe come out to demonstrate the basket making to the students. Joe was down there on his knees on the floor doing it. 
And I looked over there pretty soon, and here was this girl kneeling down there next to him, helping him do the basket, asking all kinds of questions. And then she'd say, do you need any help? And we told her no. I had her in class after that. Every day she was there, do you need any more help? Are you going to do this this weekend? Can I help you? And I kept saying no. Finally, I got tired of that, and I said, we'll put a stop to this right now. We're going to cut wood this weekend, and you can come with us. <laughs> so we went out, and I cut a couple of trees. Now, these are usually about seven to eight feet long and about eight to ten inches in diameter. And I looked at her, and I said, there they are. The truck's down there, and they need to get there. She picked one up, carried it down, and we've been together ever since. And she's, she's my wife. Well, like uh, Floyd said, I was a pain in the side back then, and still am today, I guess, <laughs> at times. But we did. I had a great love, and I guess I just amazed, same way he was, with here's a tree standing in the woods, and with some minor tools and a little bit of skill, you've got a beautiful object. You didn't have to go to Walmart. You didn't have to depend on anybody. You just did it yourself. So, but what he didn't say is he got a promotion. Joe was a master. Floyd became the journeyman. And I became the apprentice. <laughs> so I got to step and fetch. And I got to swing the axe. And I got to find the bees in that axe handle when they hit it. And all of the other stuff that came with it. But we all had a good time. We'd sit out making baskets, splitting the log, preparing the wood, and just kept doing that. Every weekend, we were at Joe and Maybell's, either making baskets or doing some chores there around the house. Well, then in that winter of 81, Joe's house burned down. Well, this was before cell phones and all the social media, so it was mid-afternoon before I got the word. Well, here I go flying out to Pettigrew Road. I pull up to the house. There is no house. <coughs> There's a pile of rubble and a little bit of smoke still coming up and ash. There's no Joe. There's no Maybell. <laughs> There's not even a Floyd. Pretty soon I found out there were a couple of doors down at some family member's house. So I went in, and the first thing I did is hug both of them. Joe looks up at me and he says, you see what happened? But I got the dime. <laughs> now get this, this fella's 98 years old, his wife is in a wheelchair and she's no small lady. And he brings her down in that wheelchair about four or five wooden steps and gets her out and away in a safe place. Aww. You gotta say something for him. Mm -hmm. He lost all his possessions, everything he ever had had, not that that was a lot, but all he cared about is he had his dime. Yeah. Things were good. So donations started coming in from clothes to food to people offering services to cards with money in it from people around the community, from people outside of the community, from people that knew Joe and Maybell to people that never heard of him. They just heard his story. So with that little bit of money and a little bit of insurance, Floyd was able to find a used trailer. We got it pulled up and set up the old house spot. And then we retrofitted it so the wheelchair could get around inside, 
put a front porch on, put a back porch on, with a ramp this time. And Joe and Maybell got to move back home. Well, life was good. We screened in the front porch, we screened in the back porch, and we were back to making baskets. Maybell would sit out on the back porch, she'd supervise us. When it was so cold we couldn't feel our fingers, she'd tell us to come inside. It was time to come inside. And, uh, hot summers, it was time to take a break. We'd have something to drink. But we were always doing something, whether it was putting plastic up all around the porch in the winter, making a little brandy, make a little persimmon beer that we'll never do again. <laughs> but anyway, it was always a good time. But I was down uh, making baskets, making a cotton basket, and you're always on your knees, and we call it going to prayer. So I was down and I was struggling, kept making, kept going, and you get almost to the point, it's like, oh my, I can see the end. And you fold up the ribs and you can sit in a chair and start weaving. Well, Joe's sitting over there watching, being sure everything's all right. You get it all finished and you can sit in the chair. He said, here, let me spell you a bit. Let me spell you a bit. <laughs> so what do you do? You just say, here it is. So the master was back at work weaving the sides and Floyd and I couldn't do anything but smile. But we learned so much from him. Sitting there in the front room or on the front porch, he'd often tell us of how proud he was of us, that he had somebody to carry on his pattern. They didn't have any children, but he was so proud that somebody thought enough about his skills to carry on his pattern. I learned so much from him. I learned baskets, and yeah, I learned baskets. But he taught me so much more just about life and about people. And for that, I'm utterly thankful, and I hope you're all right with that, Joe boy. <laughs> Joe died in December 1982 at 100 years and 10 months old. The three of us were making baskets the week before he died. The man could not read or write, but I think he was one of the smartest men I've ever known. He had seen so much and experienced so much in life. He was so proud to have someone carrying on his work. We continue today to in some way pay him back for all that he gave to us. He was a very special man, and we learned so many, many things from him other than baskets. I would like to think I'm a better person for having him in my life. Joe Boy, I hope you're proud. That was Floyd and Melissa Anderson sharing reflections on Joe Dennis. Their story was recorded live in February 2017 at the Allen's Market in downtown Milledgeville. And you're hearing it here on Stories from the Market. Up next, Veronica Womack shares stories of her life growing up in Greenville, Alabama. I want to first thank Jeanette so much for giving me an opportunity to talk to you today about a subject that I really, really love, which is the uh, Black Belt region of the American South. I often get asked, well, why do you study this? Why do you research this? Why is this an important part of your life? And why do you devote so much time to it? 
and I can say Greenville, Alabama, where I'm from. And so I want to tell you a little bit about my upbringing and some of the people in my family that created a researcher. I was raised in Butler County, Alabama, in Greenville, Alabama, which is about 45 miles from Selma, about 60 miles from Montgomery, and about 45 miles from Wilcox County, so in the heart of the Alabama Black Belt. And while I was growing up, I thought that everybody had the exact same life that I had in the country. I grew up in a place where you had fresh fruits and vegetables. There was no need to go to town. I didn't even know that was something extraordinary until I was in college and I was talking to a bunch of urban people and I said something about, we used to go to town. And they said, wait a minute, what did you just say? <laughs> I said, we used to go to town because where I come from, you didn't go to town every day. You would go maybe once a, a week on Saturday and get what you needed to get, and then you would go back home. And even then, you would only need to get sugar and flour because your meat, your vegetables, and your fruit would be something that you raised at home. And so I also grew up around older relatives that I soon learned not all of them were relatives, but I thought they were relatives because they lived with us. So I had a really extraordinary life until I was about seven years old when my father died from complications from Vietnam service. And from that, I ended up spending even more time with my older relatives because my mother had to work. And from them, I started to see things that I may not have picked up on if I had lived somewhere else outside of the Black Belt. And let me explain what the Black Belt is. The Black Belt region is a region that extends from Texas to Virginia. It's about 300 counties. We're sitting in one of those counties. And it's the old Confederacy the old plantation south that has enormous populations of, of African Americans there. So there's a very rich, beautiful culture that comes from this place. And so I was spending time with my great-grandfather, Papa, and I would go everywhere with my grandparents. I was just telling the young boy uh, back there, that's the best companion that you could ever have is your grandparents. I thought they knew everything. I know I talked them to death and worried them to death. They would run to try to get in their, their car to get, away, to get away from me. So I saw Papa leaving, and there was no way he was going to get in that, that truck without me. So I jumped in the truck with him. And usually he would tell me to sit and wait in the truck. He would go to the Caps Drug Store and get what he needed, and he'd bring me some candy. But that day, he was very quiet, so I was nervous that he was going to forget that I needed to get candy from him. So I tiptoed out of the truck and went up to the counter. And by the time I got to the counter, he looked back. And the look that he gave me, it was a look I can't explain to you. I realized what was going on. For the first time, I realized that Papa couldn't read. And Papa was going into Cap's drugstore and he would have to sign with an X. And you don't see that much anymore, but when I was growing up, I noticed a lot of older people, particularly African-Americans, would have to sign their, their names with X's. And so he, he just, he was just, he was embarrassed. And so I could feel it. And so when we got back in his truck, he didn't really say anything to me. 
And he looked at me and he said, Raj, baby, you've got to learn how to read. He said, you've got to go to school, you learn, you learn everything that you can learn. And that stuck with me. And so I got home and I told mama, I said, mama, did you know that, you know, Papa couldn't read? She said, yes. And then she started naming all of the relatives, all of the beautiful ladies at church that couldn't read and the men, you know, all of these men that could quote scripture that couldn't read. And so I started talking to people and I found out it wasn't that they didn't want to read. There was no school. And so from that, that sparked something in me. It sparked something in me, not only from, for education, but also that they had this interesting life. So when I got to the University of Alabama, where I went to school, I was in a class, and we were talking about urban politics and urban policy. And so, you know, there, there's not many classes for rural policy and rural politics. And so I'm sitting here, and so I honestly thought that this would be a legitimate question. And I raised my hand, I asked the professor, I said, well look, I'm interested in the Black Belt and finding ways to develop that region. And my professor looked at me and he said, the only hope for the Black Belt is to give everybody a Greyhound bus ticket out. And so when I heard that, and then I started hearing from my classmates, you know, these theories about why the, the region was in the shape it was. And so I made up my mind that I would tell the real story because I knew the real story. I knew how people worked very hard, how honest people, the people that the couple just spoke to. My family makes baskets. So all of the beautiful, rich cultures that we've had, the fact that the race relations are not black and white as, as many stories are told. You know, when I was a young child and my, my father died, the person in my life that kept us afloat was a white shopkeeper that would make sure that we had food, that make sure that we had soda pop, well, it wasn't soda pops then, it was drinks <laughs> or pop or something. But, you know, the story of the black belt is not an easy story, it's quite complicated and it's complex, but it's beautiful. And so I dedicated my life. So when I heard about Sparta and a community in the Black Belt that was moving forward, I wanted to be a part of that. I hear all the time, well, why are you at Georgia College? And why are you in Milledgeville? I love it. This is my home. This is where I'm from. This is the kind of life that I've always led. And I, I see such value in it and I'm so, fortunate to be here with you today to share a little bit of what the Black Belt is and the people and how I got to be sitting over there in the Smith House at Georgia College. So thank you so much. That was Veronica Womack sharing stories of growing up in the Black Belt. Her story was part of the storytelling concert Celebrating the Heroes We Love, which was recorded live at the Allen's Market in February 2017. If you've enjoyed our program, please consider coming out for our next live event, which will take place at 2 p.m. Sunday, March 27th in the Allen's Market building in downtown Milledgeville. 
Stories from the Market is a co-production of Milledgeville Allied Arts, storyteller Jeanette Waddell, and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight's program was produced for radio by yours truly, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending a portion of your evening with us here on Stories from the Market, and I want you to know that I look forward to hearing you soon.